My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our love shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humor. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modeling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them go because This episode strikes a cool balance between fun and serious, I reckon. You're going to meet my good friend Laura Wells, an environmentalist, fashion model and social media force. If you want to check her out on Instagram, it's at IamLauraWells. And you can check mine out while you're at it, which is at Mrs Press. Laura is what I'd call a very modern model. She's one of those girls we're now describing as influencers. Her beauty is obvious, but there's a lot more to Laura. She once told me that she struggles with the fact that the fashion industry perpetuates overconsumption and it's not sufficiently transparent. But she said, I think I offset that to a certain extent with my advocacy work. Modelling pays my bills and it gives me a platform to promote the values that I care about. In this episode, we talk about that tension and about those values in particular around ocean conservation. Why did a woman with two degrees who thought modelling was a waste of time decide to embrace life in front of the lens? What's the deal with a plus-size label and why should we all get out more and embrace our wild spaces? You're going to love listening to Laura explain her journey from animal-not-loving Sydney kid to butt-kicking saviour of our seas and land-based natural environments. You're going to love Laura full stop, unless you've got a single-use plastics habit, in which case be afraid, be very afraid. Do not let Laura see you sucking on a so-called disposable coffee cup, you have been warned. Laura, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us on Wardrobe Crisis. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. And I am obsessed with your Instagram. You're just always telling me stuff I don't know, particularly around the ocean. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important to me is educating people on things that they would not normally have experience with or that wouldn't be their circle of influence. And I think social media is a really powerful tool to get those messages out. Laura, on your website, you describe yourself as an environmentalist presenter and one of Australia's top plus size models. But in that order, why do you put the environment first? Uh, The environment is something that's a huge passion of mine. I studied a uh, marine biology degree and a law degree and the modelling came after. Uh, That was never something that was on my radar. It was never something I thought I could do or was it ever inspired to do. Wasn't Um, your big dream as a kid? No, not at all. Mm. I never thought of myself as a model. And I was engaged in science and the world around me. So that that is me. That is an embodiment of me, first and foremost. Laura, I want to get into the modelling later and also into the work that you do. 
But let's begin at the beginning. Where did you grow up? When did you become obsessed with or fascinated with the sea and with the ocean? And just tell me a story about what Laura Wells was like as a little kid. Sure. Uh, I grew up in southern Sydney in the suburbs of the Sutherland Shire. So we were surrounded by bush and ocean and river. And I spent a lot of time at the beach doing surf club as a nipper. You were a nipper. I was a nipper and I really enjoyed it being outside. I think that was, you know, that was like our Sunday mass was going to the beach. I uh, was a very outdoorsy kid, played lots and lots of sport, uh, grew up in a big family with lots of brothers and sisters and cousins. And I just generally enjoyed being outside and being curious. Although as a kid, I did not like animals. There's photos of me and there's evidence of it, of me patting a kangaroo with a piece of paper because I didn't want to touch it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it was a big, uh, it was definitely a big shift when I went to university and started to study uh, science, especially for my family, because I was this, dog-fearing, animal-not-loving person, but really deep down I actually was. And I became so curious when I was doing my biology degree that uh, I really opened up another world to me. It's so interesting to hear you say that because often our first kind of in on loving the animal kingdom is this whole idea of cute. You know, it's so cute. I want to I want to save the cute thing. And I think that's often why when it comes to conservation, we want to save the most fluffy little wabbit, but we care less about some of the creepier looking creatures perhaps in the ocean's depth. Oh, totally. But you didn't come into it that way. No, no. Um, yeah, I was afraid of animals. And then the thing that got me into conservation was cutting them up. What? <laughs> uh, in, you know, in my biology lab classes, dissecting penguins and snakes and snails and frogs. Um, of that, course, that's that what really, biology is. Yeah, and, but that was the thing that actually got me into thinking about how important they are and understanding the world around me and how important everything is to us to survive. So that was the reason now that I want to conserve, not because I thought things are cute. Brutal woman. You just <laughs> threw me back into my school days when we had to cut up an eyeball. Yeah. No, that, I mean, I found all that stuff super fascinating when I was in high school. So that's definitely what propelled me to do a science degree. How old are you now? I'm 32 now. So yeah. what advice, looking back, would you have given the teenage Laura? Oh, man. I mean, just don't give a crap about what anyone thinks especially in high school, it's such a weird age and people have all different opinions about different things, which are usually formulated from who they grew up with, um, their family beliefs. They're the years where we start to formulate our own ideas about the world around us and we start to take things in and just not worrying about what other people think, not worrying about the clothes you're wearing or the length of your hair or how pretty you are or how many pimples you have or if boys or girls like you. Just really finding yourself and what interests you, putting yourself out there is something that I would definitely tell myself to do. Just don't be afraid, take risks and go for it. That actually embodies how I feel about you. You are that girl who who just goes for it. Well, I feel like I am now. I still hold back on a lot of things and I, I definitely have my partner, Jesse, to thank for uh, pushing me out of my comfort level. He was in the army and he he's a risk taker, but, you know, definitely controlled risks as well. But he pushes me out of my comfort zone, which is awesome and gets me to out there doing things that I really, really enjoy at the end of the day, even though at the start I might be a little whiny lady (laughs) but uh yeah and it's definitely something that I've learned to take control of myself and really push my own boundaries because it has led me down a path of somewhere I thought I'd never be and it's really really cool at one point you thought you would be a lawyer and you did mention before that you did and completed a law degree I believe Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Uh, I actually studied my degrees at the same time. I did wow. a double degree science and law. And when I finished, I knew that I would never be a lawyer. It was just not for me. And kudos to all those people that are out there doing it because, you know, we definitely need them and it's an important job. But when at the end of the day, I considered law and science, I thought I could be an environmental lawyer, but it just wouldn't have ticked all my boxes. And I don't think I could make the changes that I'm making now as a scientist. So I decided never to become a lawyer and I would throw myself at the science world um, wholeheartedly. I think you once told me that you also never imagined yourself being stuck behind a desk inside. <laughs> no. Yeah, office job for me, it will never work. It just, yeah, I need to be outside. I need to be getting dirty, my hands on tangible things that I can hopefully make a difference with. What is it about the ocean that you love and that excites you every day? Oh, man, it's um, it's such a cool, it's such a cool environment. I mean, as soon as you're immersed, you feel like a different person, like all your cares and your worries have just completely disappeared. You are experiencing feelings and seeing things that obviously you can't see on land. The colours, the textures, the shapes, the curiosity of the animals themselves coming up and looking at you is really something cool. And They share that curiosity that we share. That's something that I think definitely combines us overall as different species. And even just looking at the ocean, being near it is something that can wash all your feelings away and make you feel like a different person. And I think that's something that's really important to me. When I lived in New York, not being surrounded by ocean, I really felt like there was something missing from my life. And it wasn't until I moved back to Australia and started living right beside the ocean, woke up every day looking at the ocean that I realised, oh, man, that was, that was it. I was surrounded by a city and concrete and stinky garbage and lots of interesting people and lots of interesting things, but it just wasn't the ocean. And I miss that salty air and that feeling that I get when I just look at the blue. I hear that so often from Australians. I grew up in Britain, not nowhere near the sea, and so I don't have that feeling, but I'm married to a surfer, and if you take him away from the connection of the ocean, he freaks out, like yeah. he can't be happy. Yeah, and I think even I've noticed people that didn't grow up at the ocean, they eventually start to feel it or they do feel different when they see the ocean, but it's it's definitely something intrinsic to me and my embodiment and it's something that's super important to me. So I don't think I could ever really move too far from the ocean or it's something that I need to, you know, dip my toes in all the time. <laughs> if you're not lucky enough to live by the seaside, as we call it in Britain, um, I can understand what, how you might feel a disconnect. But if you are living within sight and smell and sound of the, of the foreshore, it's, it's obvious it's very important to us. Why is it that so many of us, despite that, don't realise that we need to protect our oceans? Our oceans are one of the most important assets that we have as, as a species and as a planet. It is the reason why we're here, the ocean. We were created from the ocean. And the, what does that mean? Well, we all started from a single-celled organism and then we evolved from there. So... The ocean provides four out of every five of the breaths that we take. And a lot of people don't know that. They think it comes from the trees on land, which, you know, they do produce a lot of oxygen. But our plants in our ocean are the things that are creating most of our oxygen. And if we don't have a healthy ocean, we don't have healthy plant life in our oceans, then we're not creating the oxygen that we actually need to survive. And on top of that, the ocean is a huge carbon sink. So it's soaking up all, a lot of the carbon dioxide that we're producing. Uh, and it is getting to a threshold where it cannot 
no longer take anymore. But we have to understand that that ocean is actually helping us to survive right here, right now. When you talk about plants, are you talking about algae? What what other yeah, plants? Yeah, algae, seaweed, um, sea plants, sea grasses, all of that. All, all of that's growing in the ocean, yeah. And so what happens if we if we don't look after our oceans, if we tip our toxic effluent into them, if we, what else? What are the, what are the things that are imperiling our seas at the moment? Well, right now, um, a great example, especially being from Australia, is the Great Barrier Reef. That is in dire straits right now. And even today, there is talk of, well, now that one of the rivers in southern Queensland has flooded and is pouring out a lot of pesticides into the southern Great Barrier Reef, they've found um, areas of bleaching due to the river flooding. So everything we do on land basically ends up in the ocean. And it doesn't matter if you live five hours from the ocean, 10 hours from the ocean, it all runs downhill. It ends up there somehow, somewhere. And Everything that you do today affects something that we do tomorrow, next week, five years, 10 years, 50 years from now. So we need to think about that. Why don't more of us realise what's going on with our beaches and our oceans, do you think? I think it comes down to education and also where our interests are centred. A lot of us are wrapped up in our everyday lives it's the screens. We're obsessed with social yeah. media, just looking at screens all day. I know. Go outside. And it, that can be good and that can be bad because we do learn a lot of good things from social media, but we aren't harboring that connection to our outside world. And that's something that I think should really be promoted because as soon as you're out there touching things and making that connection, you really become aware of what's around you and it makes you give a shit. That comes back to um, She Went Wild, which we mentioned in the introduction, Mm -hmm. which is a campaign to try and get women in particular, but to get women out there getting dirty, getting amongst it, seeing nature at its best and worst, whatever it is, in the rain, in the sun. What... Why we are more sedentary? Do you think, are you noticing just even through the contact you've had with that campaign, She Went Wild, that um, we are less, we're outdoors less? Totally. What I get a lot is, oh, you're so adventurous and you get outside and you do all these things. I wish I could do that. At the end of the day, you can. It's not costing me any money uh, to go for a hike. You can go do that wherever. You just have to think about doing it. And because I have that connection with being outside and really loving it, it makes me do it more. So the more you do it, the more you want to do it, the more you think about it. And, you know, rain, hail or shine for me, I don't mind going outside when it's raining. It's actually quite enjoyable. Little More little critters come out and, you know, you just, you're really immersed in the experience. So for me, it's like kicking people up the butt, telling them to get out there and just give it a go. And, you know, not everyone likes the outdoors and people get freaked out by creepy crawlies, but there's a lot more out there that you can do to, you know, shun that feeling and really get deep and you don't even have to get dirty but just get into yeah. it yeah that made me think of this time when I'm not keen on a creepy crawly life but once in Byron I went on a night walk yeah. oh my oh. god it was amazing yeah that oh my god at night spotlighting in the bush you find so many cool animals I mean owls are out possums sugar gliders everything there's some really cool animals out at night time so yeah that's definitely a fun experience and there is this magical feeling isn't there when you remove yourself from our comfortable four walls mm-hmm. and our digitized life when you get out there yeah it's amazing isn't it oh yeah it's a primeval it's, connection i think yeah i think it takes us back to our traditional roots you know that past evolutionary life where we were hunter-gatherers, we did live outside, we lived amongst it. And that's still embedded in us. And that's why when we do do it, we feel that really deep connection and we really enjoy it. Laura, you work with 
Greenpeace. You work with the Marine Stewardship Council. What else? What are some of the other um, organisations that you have put your name and your your energy behind to try and push that message out that we need to think more about our natural world? Yeah, I've worked with yeah Greenpeace, the Marine Stewardship Council, Take Three, which is about marine plastic pollution, One Million Women, who are an amazing organisation getting women together to combat climate change. I've worked with WWF, the Boomerang Alliance. What's that one? I'm not familiar with the Boomerang uh, Alliance. The Boomerang Alliance is a coalition of over 30 different environmental groups who all come together and work with the Total Environment Centre on different campaigns. So I've worked with them on the Cash for Containers campaign, so getting our refund back on the bottles and cans that we recycle, just like in South Australia. So I worked and helped out with those guys on that campaign and we got it passed in New South Wales and Queensland as well now, so that should be coming in in the next couple of years. So, you know, you'll be able to recycle and Uh, get your 10 cents back on bottles and cans and that will remove so much litter from our beaches and streets which is really really awesome. Plastic (laughs) drives me bananas. Shops always offer us plastic bags. It happened the other day to me I could rant about this but it happened the other day to me in the wine shop and I tried to have a bit of argy-bargy with this guy to say hey maybe you could not offer bags Mm -hmm. and then less people would demand them and he said absolutely not that's our policy we offer the bags people want them they get cranky if they can't have them what, what is this all about and what can we do about it and how mad are you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, steamingly furious, uh, but I contain it because I've learned that if you are furious towards people, then it does nothing to educate them. So I've had to learn to change my tune. We use a plastic bag for on average 12 minutes and then that plastic bag isn't recycled and it goes to landfill. And whether it goes to landfill because you threw it away or because you used it as a bin liner, it's still going to landfill. And because you reused it as a bin liner doesn't mean you you recycled it. You just lengthened its life, but it's still ending up in the same place. 80% of the plastic that is in our ocean comes from land-based sources. That means either people littering, wind um, coming, you know, from upstream downriver into the ocean. So what, they blow away out of bins? Yep, that sort of thing. Uh, People deliberately just throwing it on the ground or or on the beach or upriver, you know. There's all different ways. Oh my God, please um, don't even start me on that. (laughs) Yes, people definitely doing it out the car window still. Uh, The ocean is downhill from everywhere. So that's how it, that's how it gets there. What happens to plastic when it reaches the ocean? So plastic, lasts forever. It never actually goes away. It does break down, so it will photodegrade, so it breaks down through sunlight or erosion, so the wind and the wave action, and it'll break down into smaller and smaller pieces eventually to the point where it becomes microplastic, so small pieces, or it can also become nanoplastic, which are pieces so small you can't see with the naked eye. So things like when we wash our clothing, that wastewater goes out to the ocean and our clothing that a lot of it is synthetic, made from polyester, pieces of that come off when we wash and that all goes out into our oceans and our harbours. So we have a huge, huge problem. So not only is it the big pieces that we can see, it's the pieces that we can't see that are really big issue for our ocean's health and for our own health as well. Once it's in the ocean, it's never going away. It's either ingested by other animals. Also, the plastic that is in the ocean attracts other chemicals. So it's um, 
it's like a sponge. So not only is it toxic itself, but all the other chemicals that have run off into our ocean from you know pesticides or clothing manufacturing or any form of industry, it soaks up all those toxins. So that piece of plastic is highly toxic now and can be ingested by fish. And then we eat the fish. And then we and then, eat the fish. So we're essentially eating our own garbage. Yeah, and we, we're we not 100% sure what that's doing to our human health at the moment because it's a new phenomenon. I'm not sure how many listeners will have seen those images that are very confronting of bird life that has died from ingesting plastic, thinking it was food. Yes. And their poor little stomachs all filled with not even microplastics, but discernible bits of rope, yeah. bottle tops, toothpaste lids. Yeah, um, lighters, everything. I've actually worked with uh, Dr. Jennifer Lavers. She's an Australian scientist and she works with seabirds and plastic ingestion. And we were on Lord Howe Island together and I did some work with her taking some shearwater fledglings, so the baby chicks, out of their nests after their parents had left them and before they would uh, fledge themselves. And we take them out and we fill their stomachs with water and get them to regurgitate the food that is in their stomach. And more often than not, I think that year was about 90% of chicks had some form of plastic in their stomach. And that's because their parents are going out foraging, finding these things on the surface, bringing, thinking they're food, bringing them back, and it's plastic because those birds over time have never experienced plastic. Anything that was in the ocean was organic. But we've changed that landscape as humans now, so it's, a, it's having a very big flow-on effect to all the other organisms that utilise our ocean and, and our earth. It's a big question, but what can we do? There's lots of different things we can do. Uh, as individuals, we can reduce our amount of single-use plastic use. So things like straws and disposable cutlery, plastic bags, water bottles, just we don't have to use them. I, in my handbag, have a reusable straw, reusable cutlery, a uh, container that I can put food in. I have a reusable water bottle, stainless steel water bottle, and a reusable coffee cup. A lot of people don't realise coffee cups are quite a big problem because they're not just made of cardboard, they're actually lined with plastic. And the lids, and are, the plastic. lids are plastic and they can't be recycled. And when they say compostable, that is a bit of a furphy because they can only be <laughs> composted in an industrial composting facility, not just in your backyard. And there's only a handful of those around Australia. And unless you're council actually pulls out all those coffee cups and sends them there then they're not going there so we really need to have a have a think about that as well so that's individually that's what we can do from a commercial standpoint we really need to be looking at design and and the life cycle of our products that we're creating so it needs to come back full circle that way and have a look at you know well we need to do a life cycle analysis on what we're creating the packaging that we're using and where that all ends up can it be reused can it be recycled can it be composted what happens to this garment or this item at its end of life can it you know can it have another purpose what can we do with it and that's really on manufacturing end uh, we probably need some legislation to deal with that as well but as an individual we can vote with our wallets you know, um, we're not just making transactions, we should be making actions. So we need to be really thinking about where our money goes. And, you know, if our money, we're voting with our wallets, then if we keep purchasing the same item, then that company is going to keep creating that item. As soon as we take a stand and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy that because of this reason, then they'll change their ways. And we've seen that happen. It's that positive pressure from 
individuals, communities, and then governments that really get things moving and changing. So as an individual, there's so much you, you can do and you should be really positive and hopeful about what your actions can change. One of the cool things that is being done around ocean plastic, and I think H&M uses the term shoreline waste, which is kind of a good term because it puts it in perspective. Yeah. You can see it, can't you? Yeah, Littering exactly. the sand. Yeah recycled polyester that's been made from rescued PET bottles that would have ended up in the ocean. I interviewed a woman called Heidi Taylor, who's an Australian who works for an organisation. Do you know her? Yeah, Heidi's awesome. She works with Tangaroa Blue. Yeah, Um, yeah, I've met Heidi a few times and they've got a great organisation really trying to combat marine plastic pollution. Volunteer-based. So they Mm -hmm. take volunteers up to places like as far afield as Cape York and further down all over the country in Australia and collect this waste. But then the cool thing is they save it all up and they sell it, some of it anyway, to a company called Bionic Yarn, which is part owned by Pharrell Williams. And Bionic Yarn turns it into this recycled polyester thread, which has been used in brands like G-Star Denim, in Timberland, in H&M, in their Conscious Collection. But there's another one, isn't there? What about Econal? Because you've actually worked with that. Yeah. uh There's a lot of different brands out there that are producing um, this type of fabric out of waste materials now. So Econil is made from waste plastic fishing nets. So fishing nets that are called ghost nets, they're just drifting in the ocean, collecting and killing or entangling wildlife. Uh, So they're taken from the ocean and they're turned into this material that can be used. And I've been using some with a company that I've been working with, Koru, to make swimwear. And, you know, it's it's a better alternative than using virgin materials because these materials are made from petroleum-based, so oil-based. So if we can reuse something that has already been extracted from uh, the earth and then also taken out of the ocean, then that is a better footprint than using virgin materials. Econal is basically regenerated nylon, isn't it? And yes. they've used it in, it is popular in swimwear. I believe Patagonia does a line using Econal. Yes, they do. There's um, quite a few brands out there using it now, which is great. And it's definitely getting the message out there. And I think people are starting to look for it a little bit more now too. But I think we, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot more that can be done in that area. Well, there was that great picture of Kelly Slater sitting on a pile of old re- rescued fishing yeah. nets. Yeah. He yeah. uses it in Outer Known. So that's his sustainably produced outdoor wear brand. But Laura, what about the fact that these fibres are presumably still shedding microplastics? Yeah, um, that's another problem. And that's something that I've been thinking about as well. What else can we use to substitute these products and for some clothing it's really difficult so for swimwear that material is perfect for swimwear and it's hard to move to cotton swimwear or something well we're not going back to saggy crochet people won't do it (laughs) the research seems to be only now being stepped up around this problem of microfibers from clothing textiles but I will share um, in the notes to this show some links towards the work that's being done by Dr. Mark Brown, who is a British scientist, but who's been working in Australia for the past several years, doing really great research into the problem of microplastics. And it's his opinion that we can solve the problem potentially fairly easily with filters on washing machines. And maybe I know that Patagonia is pioneering laundry bags that capture the fibres. Yeah. So I think there's ways. It's just more voices and more collaboration and more collective thinking isn't it definitely it's that stepping outside of the box and finding the solutions not just complaining about them that's what we need to do and yes there is definitely work being done so uh, things that we can retrofit to our existing washing machines that will um, 
help to collect these microbe fibers before they make their way out into the ocean and harm our wildlife. So yeah, it's really exciting to see that people are pioneering these new technologies to really you know, help our planet and help us. Laura, you don't just advocate for protecting our oceans, but also for our land-based natural environments. That allows me to segue into the fact that you were in this campaign for Fashion Revolution with Mighty Good Undies called Bear for Good. (laughs) And I did it. And I've got to say, I didn't even dare get naked. I'm just basically wearing a singlet and freaking out. But I found that whole process of being stripping off in front of a photographer or even considering doing it (laughs) quite confronting. You do it all the time. Talk me through that. Yes, well, uh, for the past nine years, almost full-time, I've been working as a model, so nine years full-time, and it was something that I never, ever thought I would do. You know, I just wanted to be a scientist, and being a model was my sister's jam. She was, um, she's five years younger than me, and she started modelling at about age 12 or 13. Oh, she was so young. Yeah, and she was amazing. And that was her thing. And I was always the older sister who was a size 14. And, you know, that was never seen as a model back then. Well, not that I knew of anyway. But there were scientist models because Cindy Crawford has got a degree in, (laughs) I don't know if it's biology or chemistry. I think she's a chemist, Cindy Crawford. Well, there's more of us out there. Uh, (laughs) But for me, yeah, um, my sister was, you know, a size 6 to 8 and I was a size 14 and I've been a size 14 since I was 14 years old. So... I never, ever, ever imagined myself being a model because I never saw women my size being a model. It was just not mainstream. It wasn't something that I could ever compare myself to or see myself in magazines because I just, my body shape wasn't there. And when I was approached to become a plus size model, I um, I was kind of offended. <laughs> I... Yeah, well, one, I didn't know what a plus size model was. I had no idea that existed. And secondly, I thought they were just calling me fat. And I just thought, you know what? Screw you guys. Uh, I don't think of myself as fat. I just think of myself as, you know, this is me and this is how I am normally. And plus size modeling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Where did this happen? Were you scouted when you were on holiday in New York? Yeah, I was in New York. Uh, My sister was over there seeing model agents and I was in, uh, had been in Canada and flew down to see them. And I got scouted twice over there and asked to be a plus size model. And yeah, it was just a bit of a head spin out for me. And, you know, I said to my mum, you know, what's going on? They're calling me fat. Like, I'm a, I want to be a scientist. You know, I'm never going to be in this world. And it wasn't until I got back to Australia that um, I got approached again. And I went and saw an agency and mum helped me go and see an agency and uh, I got signed and then I started working two weeks later. So, What flipped your thinking around um, that label? Uh, it was working in the industry um, and definitely becoming more body conscious of myself. I think uh, I realised that the word plus size isn't negative. It doesn't have negative connotations unless you put it on there yourself. And for I mean, me... plus is a positive. That's yeah, literally what it means. Exactly. And for us to make it into an have negative connotations and for it to seem like it's a bad thing is it's quite bizarre way of thinking I think for me I'm a normal healthy size size 14 woman who has a healthy BMI who is very active and so for me to use the word plus and think of it as negative was something that I didn't agree with and it didn't mesh well with me so throughout working as a model I you know I finished my degrees and then I went into full-time modeling and gave it a go and 
I really became to understand my body. Why did you actually embrace modelling when you, at the start, weren't particularly interested in it as a career choice? Uh, I guess I thought I'd give it a go because it would help pay my way to university. (laughs) I saw those dollar bills and I thought, hey, this is a great way to pay for my textbooks or whatever. I got offered, like, I... The modelling industry is a very fickle industry. It's very last minute. It's very hard to have another day job while you model. So the fact that I was at university when I first started modelling, I had to turn down a lot of castings and jobs because I wanted to be a scientist. So I needed to finish university. Uh, So I just said no to a lot of jobs. And then in my last year of university, I started getting really busy and I worked with some really amazing Australian photographers that helped propel my career, essentially. I got some amazing photos and I probably I became a bit more confident and I guess I started to really embrace my body shape the way it was. Had you not, you said before that when you were first scouted and they used the term plus size, you kind of thought, what? That that doesn't relate to me and also I don't care. Yeah. But did you feel the, the fashion industry can be one of deeply held insecurity that makes young girls in particular feel less. Did you feel pressure? Did you did you feel not so confident or were you comfortable enough in your own skin and your own self by that point to be able to withstand those pressures? Yeah, I think for me, I was comfortable enough in my own self. I definitely had insecurities growing up in high school because, as I said, I never saw my body shape in a magazine. And being a size 14 at 14 years old and being five foot 10 and having a lot of smaller friends and you know most of the people that I knew were smaller than me, I would cut the labels out of my clothing because I was embarrassed to be a size 14 and there was a big stigma about it. It didn't really affect me at the time. I just did it because I felt self-conscious about it. I don't think my body shape ever really stopped me from doing anything besides wearing jeans and shorts. (laughs) I really did not enjoy wearing jeans and now I wear jeans all the time because I'm more comfortable with myself. But I really learned to grow throughout the industry. But let's just dial this back here. 14 is the average body size for a woman, dress size for a woman. Mm -hmm. It's not plus size it's average yeah it, it we've is. got a funny lens on this conversation because uh we're benchmarking against something that is not average of course some many models are genetically blessed to be amazonianly tall and super skinny but we also know that lots of them feel pressure to make themselves more skinny exactly. but none of this is really the correct way to look at how ordinary womankind is and looks no not at all and i think now that i understand the industry itself i see the fashion industry as an art piece because they're using women who you know they are gorgeous in their own rights and They're beautiful and tall and skinny and some are naturally skinny. Some others have to work very hard or do things to get to that level. But I think we also need to understand that in a commercial sense and an everyday sense, women and men are all different shapes and sizes and they want to feel encouraged and embraced and they need to kind of, I think it comes down to the individual but a lot of people want to feel welcomed and they want to feel that they have a place so by not showcasing those people you're segregating them it has caused a lot of internal issues for a lot of people in terms of body image but you're also just from a commercial concern sidelining a whole market oh yeah if you put people off by not reflecting them back in your ads or your campaigns or your runways then you're basically alienating a whole market of people that could 100%. be buying your stuff yeah, and that is something that a lot of business models have, have really seen and are changing at the moment. They're really embracing people of all different shapes and sizes, ethnicities, ages, um, and body shapes and capacities as well. So they're really trying to integrate 
everyone into their campaigns because they're realizing that, you know, people do want to feel this sense of welcoming and community and that if you don't have that, then you are segregating and you're losing a shit ton of money from your business. (laughs) And that's where the plus size market has really stepped in because these companies that stop their lines at a 12 or a 14, well, if the average size is a 14 to 16, you need to embrace them and there's your target. That's your money maker right there. It's interesting actually through when we talk about sustainable fashion because I've done a bit of digging around trying to find great sustainable fashion brands that cater to a curvy girl or to bigger sizes and there aren't any. (laughs) There aren't any. I mean, there must be, but they're they're not, they're few and far between. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess sustainable brands are few and far between at the moment. Full stop. Yeah. Uh, So the plus size industry has really grown in the last 10 years. So I guess for the sustainable eco side of plus size, that will, you know, that's going to be even further behind. So it will eventually get there, I believe. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting there. And <laughs> listeners, um, if there are listeners out there who are thinking, hey, I have a fabulous sustainable fashion brand that caters to a broader size range, please get in touch because I'd love to tell that story. Yeah, that would be awesome. It would be great to be able to um, showcase that to even my followers who are in that industry and plus size and, and want to make a difference too. Laura, what do you love about the fashion industry despite its clear issues? <laughs> uh, I actually love the creativity of it and the fact that I've learned to embrace myself. Uh, I've learned to become less self-conscious with my body. I mean, everyone is going to have body conscious issues throughout their life. And that's just, I think that's a normal part of being human. And as your body changes, as you get older, there's always going to be those insecurities. But on the whole, I have really learned to just think, you know what, this is me. I can run, I can jump, I can skip. My body does all these great things. It allows me to get outside and be curious and see things that I wouldn't have seen. And it doesn't matter what I look like. Uh, You know, the fish don't give a crap what I look like. (laughs) And that's totally awesome. And we really shouldn't be worried about what other people think about us. Yeah. That's a powerful message. Yeah. But then I guess I do have to say, you're still incredibly gorgeous with a perfect body. So you might not have a size eight perfect body, but you still have a fabulous size 14 body. So what what about listeners who are going, come on, you're still so perfect. How do, how do you square that up? Uh, perfect is subjective. It's different for everyone. And we all have our own interpretation of perfect. My interpretation of perfect actually doesn't have to deal with what you look like. It's about who you are and it's about what you give back and how you perceive your reality around you. I can be a good person without wearing a $3,000 dress or have a $2,000 handbag. I could not care less. I feel like I'm a good person when I am outside with no shoes on, running through the bush, educating people, helping them to understand the world around them, to help them make a difference. That's what makes me feel good. And if I am, my hair's all over the place, which it usually is, it's usually salty and crusty. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I have no makeup on and and I'm educating a kid about why this whale species is important to the planet and what we can do to help the whales survive, then that's something that's really cool to me. And that means a lot more than me looking stereotypically perfect or losing weight and having skinnier thighs because that's never going to happen. And (laughs) that's, that is what we should be thinking about is being a better person, not being a better looking person. Fashion's also given you this awesome platform to be able to talk about the stuff that you know about, that you're researching and that you care about. Yes, definitely. Um, 
as much as um, I'm not a big fashion-y person and I work in the fashion industry, the fashion industry and um, my modelling has given me this amazing social media platform to talk to people of all ages and ethnicities and and all over the place shapes. yeah and, and all over the great. world and i can spread so many good messages whether it be about um body positiveness or about the ocean or environment or little things that we can do i've got a great audience who they might follow me for uh, my modeling or they might follow me for the environment but now they're getting messages on both and it's an area that they wouldn't have been involved in otherwise so that's something that's really really cool that I can reach out and touch these people that would never have been in that that influence otherwise. Social media is amazing isn't it because it has flipped this whole idea of your worth being aligned purely in terms of modeling to how you look because actually now you have this voice there's Instagram stories there's Snapchat mm-hmm there's Facebook Live, whatever it is you're doing, yeah. your personality comes out and what you've got to say matters almost as much as how you look these days and it didn't used to. No, Modelling used to be a silent thing. Yeah, definitely. You were just a figure piece that was in a in a photograph and no one really knew who or what you were and they just took you off the fact that, oh, you're, they're beautiful and that's where that stereotype of the dumb model came in because they were just a model. And now, you know, there are models out there doing great things and lots of other people doing great things too, but we can showcase that. And that's where my boggle with social media comes in is that there are all these women and men out there with huge, huge followings because of the way they look, but they have a platform to get a message out and a lot of them aren't doing it. So they should use it. Oh man, this is the thing. And I think this is one of the things that the fashion and modeling industry is that People are thrust into the industry at such a young age that they don't know what their passions are. They haven't found themselves and a lot of them don't study or find that until later on when they're thrust out of the industry because they're too old. My encouragement would be for people that are getting into the industry is to find your passion, find it or try and find it early or just, you know, do as many things as you can outside of the fashion industry and spread those good messages. Use use your powers for good. Have a message and make your voice heard because you're an influencer and you can really change the shape of our planet and what people are doing. Mm. And I think that's super, super important because it shouldn't just be about what you look like. Our world is a lot bigger than that. And at the moment we're um, at a pivotal moment of climate change and what our actions do to affect our livelihoods going forward and we're custodians of this planet we are giving this planet to the next generation and i'm not confident with standing aside and doing nothing i want to make sure that my kids my grandkids and the future knows that i did everything in my power i could to make the world a better place for them and not just give them a big pile of steamy shit (laughs) (laughs) thank you laura because i love you because I love you, because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you.
Who is that? Hi, Puck Pie.